Today's reading is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 10 through 17. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. But Moses said to the Lord, 
Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The word of the Lord. So this fall, we're spending time in the narrative lectionary. One of the things I love about it is we get to deal with some of the greatest stories in Scripture and meet some of the most important characters. And we get to do so not just in, you know, kind of small chunks, but in these big, expansive passages to really understand their story. And, and I could listen to Aaron read that like all day. Like I shouldn't, I should cut some verses out. I should have kept all the verses in so I could just hear that. It was wonderful. And so, you know, we've met, uh, we, we, we got uh, a few weeks ago, we started with Genesis chapter one and we got the whole story, uh, the, the first story of creation in, in Genesis one. And then we met Abraham and Isaac in that uh, terrifying story about uh, near child sacrifice. And then last week we met Jacob, who is the dreamer and the deceiver. And today we get to meet, though, a, a, a giant who towers above them all, Moses. And really, it's Moses' story that is going to occupy the rest of what's called the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. As soon as Exodus starts, really, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is all Moses' story from here on out. And the story of Moses, it's really the crucial narrative in all the Old Testament because this is here where the, 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 what started in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 with God calling Abraham, you know, the, the, the involvement of God with his people goes from kind of a family drama with one single family to a nation, a people becoming a nation. And so that transition from a small little clan to a big nation is an important story for us understand. And so we're going to look at the three aspects of the story that was read this morning. There's the cry of the people, the call of God, and the conversation. So first there's the cry. Our, our passage begins with the news that in, in, in the years from what we learn is Moses' flight from Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh who had in some sense to some degree raised Moses, Moses had grown up in his household, died. And just a little bit of a backstory on Moses. So uh, uh, in, in the kind of inter-period inter between last week's reading and this week's reading, you know, almost 500 years have gone by. Jacob and his family, they went, they went down uh, to, to Egypt. That's the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat story. They go down there. Joseph uh, provides for his people. He serves in Pharaoh's court and uh, saves his family from famine. Well, they settle in Egypt, and they're very successful, the children of Jacob. And they're so successful that the Egyptians start to get worried that, you know, these people are becoming strong, they're numerous, and, and you know what? They're kind of the enemy within. And so if there's a war, they're going to side with our enemies and they're going to escape. And so we've got to do something to 
control them, to tamp down their success. And so an infanticidal uh, uh, decree is issued, kill um, the firstborn males of, of the uh, Israelites, and that doesn't work, and they say, drown them. And so Moses' mother famously places them in a basket. Pharaoh's daughter finds them. He grows up in Pharaoh's house. One day when he's grown up, he sees a, an, an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite. Moses kills the Egyptian. He's found out. He has to run away. He's on the lamb. He's been in Midian for 40 years as a shepherd. He got married, had kids, is a shepherd. That's where he is now. And so we hear that this, this Pharaoh who raised him died. And, and, and what this means is there's a change in administration. And as we know, when an administration changes, there, 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 there comes a potential change in policy. We see that all the time. And so I think the Israelites probably hoped, well, this new Pharaoh is going to have a new policy towards us, a new stance towards us. Maybe he's going to grant them some relief for their sufferings. Maybe, just maybe, there's the chance that he's going to lighten their loads. But to their bitter disappointment, nothing changes. As the who once sang, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And so the Israelites do what comes naturally. Our text tells us that they cry and they groan. And these are the natural expressions of, of, of physical and emotional anguish and pain from a people who have been long oppressed. And the Hebrew word for oppressed, it's one of those nice things where if you look at the English word, you can kind of get what's going on in the Hebrew too. Oppressed, what's in the middle of that? The word press. It's the same in Hebrew. It's, it's a word that means to be pressed, to be squeezed, to be sort of pushed against a wall. And so that's what it is to be oppressed. It's to be a person or a part of a group that is artificially constrained. And these cries and these groans, you know, there, there's a reason that, that blues music in this country, where did it originate? In the deep south amongst the black populations of this country because it's, it's a musical expression of a people long oppressed, squeezed by society, first by, you know, literal enslavement and then through laws and customs that, that keep you from enjoying the fullness of your freedom and your humanity and the full rights of your citizenship. And so the blues, those are those same groans, those same cries of the Israelites thousands of years before. And surely for uh, the children of Israel, their ancestors had been crying these same cries and, and groaning these same groans for centuries, and nothing had changed. And the question that hangs over the Exodus story that really gets it going is not, does God exist? That's assumed. It's not, why do bad things happen? Uh, uh, why do people suffer? Uh, that's that's Job. If we want to kind of wrestle with that question, we go to Job. But here, the question that hangs over the narrative is, does suffering go unnoticed? And the answer that the Bible gives is a resounding no. And everything changes in Exodus when these groans and these cries, which the people expressed in private or, or to one another, it, break, it gives forth to a crying out for help. And so this cry for help was a prayer. It was itself a, a first step for a people towards freedom. A cry for help is a protest to the heavens that something has got to change. That what's happening now can no longer continue. So the crucial lesson here for us is this, that, that, that change starts with a cry. 
a cry for help, a, a, a cry for protest. When we reach the point where we can no longer live with or accept the status quo. When we realize that things either need to change or we're going to die. And we see this concept all around us in culture. Addicts call it what? Hitting rock bottom. Colloquially, we call it there's, there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. There's a spark that ignites a fire. Christians talk about a, a spiritual awakening that comes when we're absolutely fed up with living a life that's far from God. Whatever it is, change starts with a cry for help. It starts there, but it doesn't stop there. Because this cry for help is not sort of shouting out into the void, into a cold and indifferent universe. Scripture says that something happened to these cries and these groans. It says they, they went up to God. They ascended like incense. That's one of the beautiful things if you grew up in a, in a church, Catholic, Orthodox church, uh, you know, where you got incense swinging around. I mean, it smell, not, doesn't just smell good depending on your, your tastes or sensitivities, but it's a symbol, right, of our prayers ascending, our worship ascending to God. And so the Exodus story, it really gets started with these words where it says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. These are remarkable verbs that God is the subject of for an oppressed people. God isn't deaf to their cries. God isn't blind to their plight. God isn't ignorant or, or uncaring. The very opposite, in fact. And so if you've ever suffered, this is exactly what you need. Someone who sees you. Someone who his, hears you, who listens to you. Uh, someone who, who actually wants to take you and your situation seriously. And so the most important story in the Old Testament, the, the story that, that shaped Israel's entire self-understanding, is the story that shows God's heart for the suffering, the oppressed, the enslaved, the marginalized. And, and we can spiritualize that, and that's not wrong to do. That's not a, a wrong move or a bad move to take, because all of us living in this world, as damaged as it is by sin, experience various dimensions of, of spiritual enslavement, spiritual uh, poverty, uh, spiritual uh, suffering, spiritual oppression and pain. There's no denying that. But we can't go to the place where we over-spiritualize this so that we don't care about people who are actually poor, actually oppressed, actually marginalized, and still even in this world today actually enslaved. Real actual slavery still exists in the world. And the reason we can't do that is because uh, Exodus actually happened. This isn't just a bunch of, you know, metaphors. A tall tale once upon a time. God actually delivered his people from real actual slavery. And, and so while salvation can never just be reduced to material circumstances, it ought to never exclude them either. Scripture is absolutely clear on this point. And, you know, this isn't some kind of uh, 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 reading, you know, Marxism into the Bible or, or, or uh, you know, baptizing uh, progressivism. This isn't the social gospel. This is just the gospel. Plain and simple. God wants to, people to be free in every dimension of their life and existence. Uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, economically, uh, intellectually, relationally, politically, etc., etc. Uh, it says 
In 2 Corinthians, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. Think about Jesus' ministry. Spiritual and, and physical healing always are going hand in hand. And Jesus talks about that as people being saved when their physical circumstances change. And so while Jesus did not found an, an earthly kingdom, he didn't establish a political party, he did establish an earthly community to continue his ministry of freeing people and to model uh, for the world what a truly liberated and liberating community looks like. So that's the, the cry. But then there's the call. So Moses murders someone, gets found out. That's a capital offense. If, if he gets caught, he's going to be put to death. And so he runs away to the, to the, the desert, to the wilderness in the east. And uh, he goes to Midian. And so he's been living there for 40 years. And his life in Egypt at this point, it's a distant memory when God calls him by appearing to him in the midst of a burning bush. Now Moses' call story is dramatic. I'm guessing that none of us have ever had a call from the Lord exactly like this. And so while the specifics don't apply to us, probably not, the general principles are still at play here too. Because everyone who belongs to God's people, has been called by God. And I think this, this sense of being called in religious communities and in the broader culture, it's largely been tied to if you're a sort of professional Christian like myself, or someone in ministry, or someone working for a nonprofit, some kind of do-gooder profession. Then you can have a calling. But the rest of us, you know, it's left up to us to be kind of spiritual seekers. We got to go out and find God. So, professionals, do-gooders, we get called, everyone else goes and finds. And, and I don't want to deny that seeking is an important part of spiritual discovery and the, and the process of, uh, of, of coming to know God in faith. I mean, Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So seeking is important. But in Christianity, the emphasis is not upon our seeking God, but God seeking us, calling us. And all of the Christian life can be seen as a response to God's call. We love because God first loved us. In some sense, we don't find faith. Faith finds us. And it finds us in, in some of the same ways that it found Moses. Now, we're not going to see a burning bush, but God does call us when we do what Moses did. He saw the bush and he turned aside. He took notice. There was a break from his just regular, everyday, humdrum existence. He's been tending sheep for decades. He's been seeing probably, you know, bushes out there burning in the desert. It's hot. These things ignite. It happens all the time. But there was something about this that caught his attention. And, you know, he'd been going around. He, he had lived this exciting life. He'd been a prince of Egypt. He'd killed someone. He had defended some Midianite women who were being harassed. That's how he'd found his wife. And so, so Moses had been a man of action in the first part of his life. For the past 40 years, he's been a shepherd of someone else's sheep. But God's call comes in the form of an interruption to normal everyday life where he can no longer ignore what's happening, where, where he turns off autopilot. When something gets his attention that causes him to turn aside from everyday ordinary life. That's how God calls us. 
And there are lots of ways that this can happen. Some of them are good and great, and some of them are bad and terrible. But they're all attention-getting, right? You experience some kind of crisis. It can be a mental health crisis, right? You break down. That gets your attention. Uh, You get sick. You get laid off. You move to a new city. Uh, You become a a parent. You lose someone uh, you love. Uh, Start a new friendship, a new relationship with someone who's a Christian and who is different. All of those are ways that God can get our attention, that we can be interrupted. But note that God doesn't speak to Moses until he sees that he's turned aside. So it's not enough to just notice. You actually have to turn aside and pay attention. And so this is a challenge for for people who are real heads down, uh, you know, always got a plan, always working the plan, always going in one direction, too busy to be interrupted or notice or give something more than a passing glance. It's very hard for kind of driven people to be interrupted. But it's also very hard, maybe even harder for the listless, right? Those of us who just kind of flow through life, no plans, no expectations, no ambitions, no dreams, no goals, you're just kind of existing. In that situation, you can become just kind of numb to ever being interrupted. So God's call comes when something gets our attention. And the second point is that God's call comes, and when it comes, it, 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 it's something that shifts our paradigm, meaning our way of understanding how the world works and, and what's supposed to happen. Our old explanations, our old frameworks aren't going to work anymore. What does Moses see? He sees a bush that is burning that is not consumed. Well, he's seen a lot of you know, brush fires before, but all of them go out because a fire requires fuel, and once the fuel source is exhausted, the fire goes out. But this one is different. What do you do when you see a bush that's burning but is not consumed? You have to see the world in a totally new way. And so that's how it works. When God calls us, our paradigm shifts. So those of us who have been maybe selfish, living for ourselves, new paradigm, become selfless. The the rule followers The moralists amongst us invited to understand what it means to live by mercy and love. And people who believe that life is really all about kind of uh, finding ourselves and our identity so we can fill our desires and, and be affirmed in what we already want are invited to see that it's not about what we want. It's not about how we are defined by ourselves or other people, but about who God wants us to be and who he says we are. Superstitious people are invited to become more rational. Skeptics are invited to faith. Materialists who say it's, you know, all biology, physics, and chemistry all the way down are invited to see that the the world is alive with the glory of God. And so no matter where we start from, when God calls us, there is going to be a a paradigm shift, a a shift in the way that we understand the world. Our entire worldview is, is going to shift in some way. Third point of this call is that when God calls Moses... He does the same to us. He calls us by name. You know, Moses, Moses. God isn't stuttering there. In Hebrew, when you say something twice, it's an intensifier. It's an expression of passion and of intimacy. That's what God's call is like. It's intensely personal. It's not some vague, generic thing. We all know how vague, generic invitations go. 
you know, after service, I need some help uh, picking some stuff up. Uh, if anyone wants to help me over there, we know how that's going to go. I mean, some poor suckers will answer that call. But if you get asked specifically by name to do that, the odds of you actually responding are just exponentially higher. And so when, when, when God calls you, he calls you. He calls me David, David, Amy, Amy, Sarah, Sarah. I could go through the whole congregation almost. Eric, Eric, come on. Respond to that call. It's personal. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, we get like half the congregation with the call like that. So it's a personal call by name. And the last point I want to make about the call is this, is that God's call is always one to participate in his mission. It's always a call to discipleship. So at first, God tells Moses, he says, this is why I'm speaking to you. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now note that the verbs here, actually, they're almost a direct echo and answer to what was already said at the end of chapter 2, that God heard, God saw, God knew. Right? This is, okay, this is, this, these promises are being put into action here. But at this point, Moses is hearing these things. Wow, God is going to do these things. He might be thinking, cool. Thank you, angel of the Lord, speaking from the burning bush that is not consumed for telling me about your plan. But, uh, like, what, why are you telling me? Egypt, uh, I don't know if you heard, but I don't even go there anymore. Uh, I'm a shepherd now. It's, 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 it's been 40 years. And so then God repeats himself with, very important distinction. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Moses is like, I've heard this before. I've also seen the impression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Okay, Moses saying, I heard this before. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So for Moses, this is his record scratch moment. Ah, you will send who, to whom, to do what? When God calls us, he calls us to participate in his mission of salvation. Why does he do that and not just do it himself? I don't know. But he does. And so God's call comes when we turn aside from the ordinary and encounter, encounter something that, that shifts our way of looking at the world, and it's deeply personal and intensely missional. Which leads to the last part of our, our passage I want to look at, and that's the conversation between God and Moses. And fascinatingly, this is the longest conversation in the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't heavy on dialogue all the time between people, but here we get the longest recorded conversation in the Old Testament. And Moses isn't like Abraham. God calls Abraham, Abraham goes. He just follows. But Moses, he, he's got some questions for God. Ones which I, I'm, I'm sure we share, and ones which actually, I think, ultimately speak to his suitability to lead this people. So Moses hears this. God says, come, go, I'm going to send you. You're going to free this people who's been in slavery for over 400 years. And Moses' first question is the natural question. Who am I? Who am I to do this? And so this question speaks to his sense of unworthiness. He's a nobody at this point. He's a shepherd. He is past his prime. Uh, he's a murderer. The, the one time he had tried to stand up for justice for his people, that had failed miserably. So he feels unworthy. And beyond feeling unworthy, I think this who am I question might actually be a genuine question for Moses. 
because we're told at the beginning of Moses' story that he's a Hebrew, and actually that's a new ethnic term that occurs in Exodus. It sort of comes out of nowhere. So Moses goes, well, I'm a Hebrew, but then he grew up in Pharaoh's house, so am I an Egyptian? And then he had been living in Midian for 40 years, so am I a Midianite? And then here God is addressing him as a, as a child of Israel, an Israelite. So Moses is saying, who am I? He's got an identity crisis. And I think it's fair to say that in many ways we, we, we kind of live in an age of identity, growing concern, interest, some would say obsession, with trying to under, understand ourselves by seeing where we fit into an increasing number of categories of identity. Who are we? But God's answer to Moses' identity question, I think, is a, a, an answer that we need to hear today, too. Moses says, well, who am I? And God's answer to that question is actually indirect, but I will be with you. So we go, how does that answer that question, who am I? And the answer is this, that, that when God calls you, we are the ones with whom God promises to be with. That's the most crucial aspect of our identity. That's what matters most. So Moses first asks, who am I? God answers, I will be with you. So the next natural question, though, for Moses is, well, who are you? Now Moses is not so bold as to pose this question directly to God. And so he says, well, if I go to the people and I say God sent them, uh, me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What should I tell them? And God's answer that he gives, it's one that has perplexed scholars, sages, theologians, pastors, believers ever since. And the answer that God gives is very strange to this question. Well, what's your name? What should I tell them your name is? God essentially says that his name is some version of the verb to be. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. Tell them I am sent you. What kind of a name is that? And there's so much that can be said. And I'm just going to go in one direction this morning. You know, some people say God is basically blowing Moses off, saying you can't ask that kind of question. Others say it's this kind of deep metaphysical, philosophical answer that God is the ground of all being, of existence itself. And, and you can go in fruitful ways in either direction. But here today, I think that, that God's answer points at something crucial by saying, you know, I am who I am. I am the God who defines himself. I cannot be controlled. Not by you, Moses. Not by the people. Not by Pharaoh. No one. And there was a belief in antiquity, in the ancient world, that if you knew the name of a god, then you could invoke that god's name, and sort of that was almost like a magic word, that the god had to respond to your invocations. And God is saying, I'm not like those other gods, that when you know my name, you have some sort of control over me. And so in a story that's all about freedom, the Exodus story, God's name itself speaks to God's radical freedom. And it's such a crucial message for us today because far too often what are we looking for in a god but a god who we can manage and control you know a moralistic religion well we can control god it, it, we just gotta perform we perform the right acts we're a good person we can control god it's transactional and it's it's not just you know conservative people who are uh, moralist too we we know we've got plenty of you know progressive puritans out there in the world but it's a way to control god be a strict moralist but then there are those who control God by saying, well, listen, it doesn't matter what I do. God will love me. He will forgive me. He has to. It's his job. You know, this God is like, I'm not a regular God. I'm a cool God. Famous Amy Poehler moment in Mean Girls. We make that kind of God. A cool God. He's down. It's cool. It's chill. Another way to control God. God can't control you because he can't demand anything of you. 
both of those ways are, are creating a God who is small, small enough for us to control. But I think a final way, maybe the most common way that we control God is we, we just end up creating a God in our own image and our own likeness. And the, the saying has been said that in the beginning, God created humankind in his image and likeness, and we have been returning the favor or trying to return the favor ever since. And so we get a God who just happens to like the same people we like and dislike the same people we don't like, and he prefers the same policies that we prefer. Isn't that a coincidence? that I just happen to line up with God exactly. Isn't that funny how that works? And what God's name means is that we need a God who can't be controlled because only a God who can't be controlled is a living God and only a living God can save us. So Moses' first question, that's God's identity, or his identity. Second question is God's identity. Third objection is, well, what if the people don't believe me? And it's funny to think when you know this that Moses is saying, well, what if the people don't believe me? He doesn't go, well, what if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? Moses is scared of the people God is sending him to. And that question, what if? How many of us have lost sleep and have spent far too many hours being anxious asking that question? What if, what if, what if, what if something bad happens that hasn't happened yet? And God's answer, he says, what if? What if? He goes, well, what's in your hand? Moses goes to staff. That's a shepherd's crook. That's enough. So the answer here, I think, is don't worry. If I call you whatever you've got, whoever you are already, that's enough. And then the whole part wasn't in our passage today, but then Moses does three signs. And one is the snake, you know, that's the, 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 the staff turns into a snake and then turns back into a staff. Uh, there's another part where he sticks his hand in his and it comes out, it's leprous, he puts it back, it's healed. And, and then the water, he turns the water to blood. And then actually two of these three signs Moses is going to do in Egypt. He's going to do the snake thing, and he's going to do the water to blood thing, but not the leprous hand thing. And so this has perplexed commentators for years. Why did God do this extra two out of three? Like, that's not a bad percentage, but why this leprous hand thing? Why are you doing that? What's that about? And, and some have said, and it's, I think this is a, a very intriguing uh, proposal to say that two of those warning signs were for the Egyptians. And the second one, the, the hand thing, was for Moses. Why is he being warned? Because his question betrays a lack of faith in the people, which according to the uh, late great rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of Great Britain, that's the one thing a leader can never do, not believe in the people. You can doubt yourself, you can doubt your mission, but you can never doubt the people God has called you to lead. I love what Sachs says on this. He says, who is a leader? To this, the Jewish, and I think really the Judeo-Christian answer is one who identifies with the people, mindful of their faults to be sure, but convinced of their potential greatness and their preciousness in the sight of God. In effect, God said to Moses, these people of whom you have doubts are believers. They are my people and they are your people. Just as you believe in me, so, you, so too you must believe in them. And so what does it mean to be a leader? It means to believe in the people that God has sent you to lead. And, and, and God is inviting Moses, because Moses keeps saying, your people, your people. And God says, my people. God is inviting Moses to see them as his people too. Moses is an objection. Okay, I'm not good at public speaking. 
And now we really get the sense that Moses is just kind of making excuses. But I actually think that here we see Moses' hesitancy shows him what makes him such a great and fitting leader. We're used to people, you know, running for election. We got, you know, city council elections, park board elections, uh, board of estimate and taxation elections are coming up here in the city of Minneapolis. We're used to people running for election. We got Moses running from election right here. He doesn't want it. And the best leaders are the people who don't want power, who are afraid of it, who are skeptical about their ability to do the job well. Because people who want power, what do we know about them? They're the most dangerous people of all. They make the worst leaders. And so the best leaders are oftentimes those who are most reluctant for the job. And I think that's Moses. That's why he's a fitting leader for a people becoming a nation. Because he doesn't want the power to rule over them. But finally, we get to Moses' real position. After this long dialogue, this long back and forth, objection, response, objection, response, objection, response, objection, response, Moses goes, just send somebody else. That's the punchline. And I love the honesty. And even if it did make God angry, because Moses is just being obstinate at this point, right? He's seen a bush burning that wasn't consumed. He's heard the voice of the angel of the Lord. Uh, God's revealed his name to him. No one else has ever gotten that revealed to them. He's been shown this amazing sign that he can do with his staff. And still Moses goes, I don't want to go. He says, send someone else because I'm ultimately not up for the job. This job of freeing people from slavery, it's, I can't do it. And you know, God sends Moses over his objections to confront Pharaoh to liberate and lead his people, to give them uh, the law, a new way of living, to, to build. Uh, much of Exodus is taken up with actually the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, this place where they can encounter him and worship him. He still gets sent to do this. But ultimately, God does answer Moses' objection. Send someone else. God sends someone even greater than Moses. You know, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says in John's gospel, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus is God coming down to deliver his people from slavery to sin, to confront the pharaohs that control and bully his people, to liberate us from, from, from death and lead us to everlasting life. And he's given us the law of love and he's written it on our hearts and he's building up a people into a sanctuary where he dwells with us. And so what begins with the exodus, ends with Jesus. And thanks be to God that Moses was sent, but also thanks be to God that he asked God to send someone else. And God did. And thanks be to God that God still hears, he still sees, he still knows, he still remembers, he still saves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.